So this, this Lenten season, we're going to be pondering the story of God, the great covenants of the biblical story in the Old Testament. Um, now, I've got to say up front, I need to give credit where credit is due. And uh, Jenny Denny uh, is due a lot of credit for thinking through a sermon series where we look at the Old Testament covenants of God leading up to the new and eternal covenant that we celebrate in Christ in Holy Week. So thanks to you, Jenny, for this. <laughs> and I hope it's enriching to us as a church. We're going to be looking at the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, Moses, David, all the way up to this new covenant. And, and the biblical story, some people have said, can kind of be visualized like a, a sideways hourglass. So if an hourglass starts wide, goes thin, goes like this, if you put it on its side, that's kind of how the biblical story can be viewed. It starts large with God's creating all of earth and then with covenants that have to do with all creation, Noah, and then a covenant that has to do with a people and nation, Moses, and then a covenant that has to do with a single king, David, and then the fulfillment of that covenant in a single person, Jesus. And then it's like the scope widens out again and you get to Revelation 21 and 22 and it's this whole new creation. So the bookends of the Bible are, are cosmic and they're vast. And yet the centerpiece of the Bible is deeply personal and individual in Jesus Christ. He is the link between creation and new creation. Now throughout the Bible at every point, the covenants are seen as concrete expressions in time and history of God's eternal character. And they're concrete expressions of, etern of his eternal character, particularly in response to human sin and rebellion. And so they reveal to us not only who God is, if you were with us on Ash Wednesday, you would have heard us talk about how God's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and, and abounding in steadfast love. But the covenants also reveal to us how God seeks to overcome evil in his world and to bring renewal and restoration to his good creation. So one of the things I've been praying as we embark upon this Lenten journey is that we would find ourselves more and more captivated and inspired by the heart of God for his creation. And that we would see our own sins and the sins of other people in the larger context of God's redemptive presence and goodness. Let me say that again, because I think that's really important in this season. <laughs> that we would see our own sins, that we would really see them, but also the sins of other people in the larger context of God's redemptive presence and goodness in the world. So it's with this in mind that we're going to start with Noah, God's covenant to Noah. We're going to look at the covenant, we're going to look at the sign of the covenant, and then we're going to look at the fulfillment of the covenant. So the covenant itself, it's, it's, it's one of those places in the Bible where we see just how expansive God's redemptive purposes are. He makes a covenant not only with Noah, are we told, in verses 8 through 11, but with his offspring and the animals on the ark. And then we're told in verses 14 through 17 that he also makes a covenant with every living creature of all flesh on the earth. And then we're told in verse 13 that he, this covenant even has to do with the earth itself. The story of Genesis and of the whole Old Testament gives us a picture of God as a loving and all-powerful creator who cherishes and sustains what he has made. This is one of the kind of central convictions of the Judeo-Christian faith. It's that, that God created creation to be very good, and that the being of creation is good itself. 
And so one of the things that we see affirmed for us in this covenant with Noah is God is reaffirming and restoring the goodness of his creation. Now, back in Genesis 1, um, creation is pictured as this kind of ordered, interrelated, purposeful cosmos. It's not random. It has intention and order to it. And so you have the rhythms of day and night. You have the spheres of, of, of water and earth and sky. You have different forms of, of life, plants and animals and humans. And all of these different, um, all this diversity is woven together in this united, enchanted harmony, a cosmos. And we're shown in Genesis chapter 1 that within the cosmos, God gives his human beings, his earthlings, his image bearers, a cultural mandate to cultivate and care for the earth that God has created, to steward responsibly and creatively as an act of worship to the creator of heaven and earth. And so part of the unraveling of the fall, the Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis is trying to, to, to kind of reveal to us is that Part of the fall is that humanity seeks to live out this cultural mandate that God has given us apart from the presence and wisdom of God. We seek to work apart from the presence and wisdom of God. And, and what it means for the world is, is nothing less of dread, than dreadful. <laughs> so we get in Genesis chapter 6, um, God saw the wickedness of humanity, we're told. And he saw that it was very great in the earth. And Genesis says, and God saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made humanity on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And so we get in just very short succession from Genesis chapter 1, the, the abundance and the joy and the delight of creation. And God saying it is very good. And now in Genesis chapter 6, he is grieved over what has happened to his creation. God is grieved to his heart. Interestingly, Genesis chapter 6 only mentions two examples of the wickedness that, that grieves God's heart so deeply. Um, before those verses, he gives an example of sexual lust and exploitation. And then after those verses that talk about his grief, he gives an example of the violence that has filled the world. And one of the things that I find interesting about that is that these two examples just happen to be the two sins that Jesus addresses first in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder violence. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister in his heart is liable to judgment. Jesus is picking up on the root causes of violence in our world. And second, Jesus addresses lust. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is getting into the heart condition that leads to sexual lust and exploitation. So this picture that we get at the beginning of Genesis is God's, God's intention amidst his grief to still bless his creation and to reestablish the goodness of humanity's cultural mandate. And we see this in two different ways. First, we see that God's covenant with Noah is not just with Noah, but it's with his offspring after him. 
And this is language that evokes Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're told that in the midst of God laying out the consequences of sin and what it's going to mean for the world, God says that, that the world is not without hope. And he, he delivers the first proclamation of the gospel, and he says there will be a member of Adam and Eve's offspring, same language, who will rise up to crush the head of the serpent who deceived them. And God's covenant with Noah is not only with Noah, but with his offspring. That promise is going to be fulfilled. And the second way we see that God is committed to the goodness and the flourishing of his creation is that we hear in the beginning of chapter 9 in Genesis that God's covenant with Noah is about ensuring that Noah's family will carry on the cultural mandate originally given to humanity in Genesis 1. God's, God blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. Go cultivate and steward the earth. And so there's this sense that God is not only committed to the continuance and the redemption of his creation, this gospel promise, but that God is committed to the fulfillment of humanity's vocation to cultivate responsibly and creatively the world that God has made. But both of these things, and this is really key to understanding the, the Noahic covenant. Now, I know I've been a bit long-winded here, but hear me. <laughs> I'm coming to the, back to the, the covenant with Noah. Both of these things depend in part upon God's continued commitment to upholding and sustaining the goodness and the rhythms and the order of his creation. The human race isn't going to continue to the point of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who's going to fulfill that gospel promise unless God upholds the rhythms of creation so that humanity can continue to be fruitful and multiply. And humanity is not going to have an opportunity to continue in God's presence and wisdom to, to cultivate the good earth that he has made unless God establishes the rhythms of that good earth so that humanity can cultivate it. That's the logic that we get in this covenant with Noah, verse 9 and 10. Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and the, and the wild animals, as many as came out of the ark. And again, the same logic in verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. But then he goes on, that never again shall all flesh be cut off for, by the waters of the flood. That never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so we see here this interconnectedness of God's commitment to humanity and his commitment to the animals and his commitment to the earth all intertwined together. And God makes this covenant with Noah to assure humanity and the earth that he will sustain and he will uphold the cosmos, that he is committed to the goodness and the flourishing of his creation. And then God gives a sign of this commitment, a sign of this covenant to confirm for his people that this is indeed what he will do. And it's interesting throughout the scriptures that God does this quite consistently, doesn't he? He makes a promise and then he gives a created sign to accompany it. It's as if God reaches down into the depths of our creatureliness, our humanity, and gives us some sort of tangible thing that will minister to us 
the intangible reality of his mercy. With, with Jesus, it was the cup. With Moses, it was the Sabbath. With Abraham, it was circumcision. With Noah, it was, it was the bow in the clouds. Now, our translations translated as rainbow, and, and so we've got lots of children's books with this beautiful rainbow. But the Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily mean rainbow, it just means bow. It's, it's, it's a sign of divine mercy, but it's actually an image of war as well. The warrior lays down his bow as a sign of peace. The war is over. And so the bow of God the warrior is arched through the vaulted heavens as a sign of peace with his creation. And so the image we get here is of God intentionally choosing to see the world through the colorful vision of his covenant rather than through the world's own corruption. Let me say that again. God is intentionally choosing to see the world through the colorful vision of his covenant rather than through its own corruption, to which I just say, Lord, grant us the grace to do the same for one another. You see, we saw in Genesis chapter 6 that God saw the wickedness of humanity was great. And now we see in Genesis chapter 9 that he sees the bow in the clouds and remembers his everlasting covenant between himself and every living creature. And that's why the psalmist can sing out loud in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. So we get the covenant and we get the sign of the covenant and then we get the fulfillment of the covenant. You know, it's Paul who picks up on that heartbeat of the cosmic scope of redemption in the Old Testament that's there throughout. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of the creation itself. He says, all creation groaning within itself and waiting with eager longing to be set free from bondage to corruption. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that uh, in what is potentially the first Christian hymn ever written, that Christ came to reconcile all things to himself by the blood of the cross. And Paul is very clear with us that this all things means all things. It means all things on earth, says Paul, and all things in heaven. And so as Paul envisions the blood of Jesus Christ, of human life, dripping down the blood of the wooden cross, of plant life, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, he sees the scope, the cosmic scope of God's covenant purposes unfolding in this man. Christ, the heart of creation. So the gospel that we get from Noah all the way to Paul is consistent and all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. It's cosmic in scope. It leaves no area of creation unredeemed. I think that's why our prayers of confession on Ash Wednesday were particularly poignant. Note this line that we confessed in Ash Wednesday. For damaging this earth and exploiting its creatures, for neglecting and wasting the gifts we have, you have given us, Lord, forgive us. For damaging this earth and exploiting its creatures, 
for neglecting and wasting the gifts you have given us. Lord, forgive us. You see, within our liturgy is reflected this, this biblical notion that the way we relate to the earth and its creatures should bear witness to the cosmic scope of Christ's redeeming blood. According to the Bible, there's this organic link between our redemption in Christ and our stewardship of creation, between our relationship to God and between our relationship to the world, between our spirituality and between our ecology, for a lack of a better way of putting it. And according to the Bible, creation is, is, is it's not divine, it's, it's not secular, it's, it's not humanity's slave, but it is God's covenant partner. And we are to relate to it as such. Let me unpack that statement as we kind of conclude here. Creation is not divine. We're not talking about some sort of spiritual pantheism where, where the sacredness of creation means we can't cut down trees or we, we can't kill animals for food. That's, that's not what's being talked about here. But, but nor is creation secular. Nor is it devoid of God's creative and sustaining and redeeming presence at every moment and in every place. And if we, if we lose sight of this, then, then we can lead, get, get led down the road of certain forms of kind of apocalyptic environmentalism. <laughs> in, which, in which the universe is viewed as this closed system without God's hope or help. And it's kind of up to us to redeem the world or, or it's going to end. And so we, we get this deep sense of doom and gloom. But the Bible doesn't say the world is divine, nor does it say it's secular. But the Bible doesn't say that the world is humanity's slave either. And this is a particular heresy that's shown up in particular forms of the Christian church throughout time, is that creation is just seen as this slave to humanity, for humanity to do what it wants, when it wants, how it wants, for its own purposes that it determines. And it, it just leads to the kind of exploitation and devaluation of God's good creation. And sometimes to a certain level of, of unchristian anti-environmentalism, in which there is no sense of care or concern or responsibility for God's good earth. And in which humans relate to it not based on need and stewardship, but based on greed and thirst, thirst for conquest and profit. So in the Bible, creation is not divine, it's not secular, and it's not humanity's slave, but it is God's covenant partner. God has bound himself relationally, not only to humanity, not only to the church, but to the birds, to the domestic animals, the cats and the dogs and the cattle, to the wild animals, the deer and the falcons and the orangutans. I love the orangutans. And to the earth itself, the clouds of the sky, the stars of the night, the fish of the sea, the mountains and the grassy plains, all of it, God's chosen covenant partner. And one of the amazing things to fathom is the fact that God has determined that for all eternity future, he does not want to be without this creation. He is committed to this creation. And God didn't have to be. God, before he ever created the world, was perfectly alive. He was fully happy. He was fully satisfied and full of joy, being just who he is by himself. 
And yet God in his goodness said, I want to be with another. I want creation to exist and to be with me for all eternity. And so he made it and he committed himself to it. And that's what we're seeing in the covenant with Noah. My family and I have been cherishing the return of spring birds in recent weeks. It's one of the ways that we like to interact with the world around us and develop a sense of home. Uh, we watch the birds, we learn their names, and we observe their playful little games. <laughs> we were at the park yesterday, and, and there was a tree that was still bare. It didn't have any buds or leaves yet. And we saw a black crow, a morning dove, a western bluebird, and a red finch all sitting together in the same tree. Now, that's really rare. And it was one of these moments that dawned on me as my kids were playing in the playground that those are God's covenant partners too. In a little poem entitled, The Peace of Wild Things, Wendell Berry writes this, and we'll end on this. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and I lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you this Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.